I'm uh, reading to you a very familiar passage from John chapter 3. In fact, we'd probably say that the uh, most beloved and well-known scripture verse, uh, John 3, 16, comes out of here. There's a wider story of that, of course, and it's the story of Jesus meeting with Nicodemus. Now, I don't know if anybody has ever seen the TV show on. It's called The Chosen. Has anybody ever seen that? It's it's about Jesus. There is a, uh, and it's well done, there is a great scene where, where they have the Jesus-Nicodemus scene in there, and it's almost like you can see if you're watching this, Nicodemus's whole world being deconstructed and his just eyes are wide in wonder as he's realizing what Jesus is telling him or trying to realize it and here we see what the scripture says about that time so we're going to read uh, John chapter 3 verses 1 through 21 friends hear the word of the Lord it said now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a member of the Jewish ruling council he came to Jesus at night and said rabbi we know you are a teacher who has come from God For no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your holy word, the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray now, Lord God, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, would be pure and acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer, in the most holy name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, we pray and give thanks. Amen. There's a little boy who's given a homework assignment one day, 
And the assignment was to write a report on his family tree. But he didn't know quite where to begin or what to write, so he went to his mother and he, and he asked, he said, Mommy, Mommy, how was I born? Well, honey, his mother replied, the stork brought you and left you on the doorstep. Oh, said the little boy, kind of confused, but then how did you and daddy get born? Oh, oh, the stork brought us too, his mother replied, a little embarrassed. But what about grandma and grandpa, the little boy persisted. How did they get born? Well, the stork brought them also, his mother quickly added. So armed with that information, little boy sat down to write his report, and when he stood up in class to share it, he began by saying, this report has been very difficult for me to write due to the fact that there hasn't been a normal birth in my family for at least three generations. <laughs> and you know, when, when Jesus spoke about being born again, I am sure that Nicodemus was every bit as confused as that little boy. What did Jesus mean by being born again, and why did he say it was so important? We know the first thing we have to understand is that this, this phrase, born again, it carries a certain amount of baggage in, in contemporary American society, doesn't it? You know, you hear the word born again, and, and what comes to mind? You know, maybe a particular type of church experience or kind of religious response for emotionally needy people. Maybe a televangelist on TV uh, asking for a donation after he's got done yelling at you. You know, when my wife Faith and I were getting ready to leave Princeton Seminary, pursue our first call, which was actually in Mifflin County, Pennsylvania, center part of the state, uh, one of her co-workers, when she was getting ready to leave, asked about the church we were going to, the Allensville Presbyterian Church. And, and she asked my wife, she said, I quote, is it a born again or is it a regular church? Born again or regular? It's kind of like, you know, do you drink decaf or, or, or regular coffee? It just sounded like that. Were we a born again church or regular church? And I'm not even sure how you answer something like that. And Nicodemus wasn't so sure what Jesus meant by being born again either. I mean, you know, think about Nicodemus wasn't, he was not an emotionally needy or, or broken man. And there's no great issue in his life that he's trying to address. He's, he's not lacking in moral clarity or structure. In fact, by all appearances, Nicodemus has really got his act together. You know, we're told, for example, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And I know, um, you know, you've heard a lot about Pharisees through the years in Sunday school. But, but what that really meant in that day, that Nicodemus is part of the mainline religious establishment. He'd be like a Presbyterian. And, and far from going through the motions... Pharisees, they prided themselves on a meticulous observance of God's law. In other words, these were people who took their religion seriously. But even more than that, Nicodemus was part of the ultra-elite Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, which is sort of like our executive and legislative and judicial branches, all, you know, balled up, rolled up into one. In other words, this Nicodemus, Nicodemus was no lightweight He's mature, he's educated, he's wealthy, he's successful, he's a community leader. In every way, Nicodemus is the picture of religious respectability. He's the first person that you would want serving in a leadership position at your church. And what's more, Nicodemus really cares about the things of God. He really cares. And in fact, that's what brings him to Jesus one night. You see, Jesus... Jesus really confuses him. 
I mean, on the one hand, he, he admits that no one could do the things Jesus was doing if God were not with him. But on the other hand, Jesus is so far outside the mainstream, nobody knows what to make of him. And so Nicodemus approaches Jesus under the cover of darkness, hoping maybe to break the ice, maybe to explore if there's any chance uh, they can find some way of working together, playing ball together, the, you know, the old mainline establishment in this popular new preacher. But Jesus stuns Nicodemus. He abruptly changes the subject, telling Nicodemus that he couldn't get to God from where he was at, and that, in fact, he needed to be born again. Now, in some ways, if you read the passage, and I, I invite you, you know, to, if you haven't ever really reflected on it, go back there, because there's almost like two different conversations going on here. In fact, that's characteristic of John's gospel. It's like Jesus is speaking at one level, and, and everybody else in John's gospel is at another level, because Nicodemus, he comes with one thing on his mind, but Jesus immediately starts talking about how no one can see God's kingdom unless they're born again, born anew, and frankly, it confuses Nicodemus even more. He's got no idea of what Jesus is talking about or how they even got on this subject. You know, it reminds me of when my children were little, and Faith and I have four children. We have two sets of twins, boy, girl, boy, girl. Uh, they're 25 and 22 now, and, um, and my wife is a saint for having raised the children with you know, uh, uh, less help than I probably should have given her. But one day, Faith and our elder daughter, Hannah, uh, were laying on the bed together. They were having one of those beautiful, special, wonderful mother-daughter moments. And if you're a mom, you have a daughter, you, you know those moments. And, and, our, and our girl, Hannah, must have been about four or five at the time. And, and they were laying there in the bed face to face. And, and Faith said she just began pouring out her heart to Hannah, telling Hannah how much she loved her and, and how glad we were that God had given her to us to be our daughter. It was just this, this deeply touching, emotional moment, the kind of moment you treasure for a lifetime. And, and Faith says that she felt this real deep connection there, that mother-daughter connection, as Hannah looked back deeply into her eyes, soaking it all in. And then after Faith had completely poured out her heart to our daughter, Hannah said to her, and I quote, she said, Mommy, yes, dear, Faith said. And Hannah replied, Mommy, did you ever notice that Wilma Flintstone has really small feet? <laughs> it's like, just like zoom, like they're on two different wavelengths. And just like it was like Jesus and Nicodemus, it's like they're on two different wavelengths also. You see, even though Nicodemus is this religious man, Jesus actually challenges the very premise upon which Nicodemus's confidence rests. In fact, as Nicodemus was a man whose religious respectability might have lulled him into a false sense of complacency, of thinking he was all right with God. That as long as he kept on doing what he was doing, you know, keeping the rules, that he was okay. And really, that, that's what most of us think. In fact, you get right down to it, a fair number of people sitting in churches right now all across America, and maybe even here today, a lot of people believe that it doesn't matter what you believe, so long as you're sincere, and so long as you do your best. But that's not what Jesus says. In fact, Jesus shocks Nicodemus to the core when he says that it's not a man's piety or his accomplishments or his goodness that makes him right with God. And it's not simply about rearranging your priorities and getting a little religion in your life. 
It's about transformation. See, when Jesus says, you must be born again, he's talking about starting over. He's talking about a new power in control of your life. He's talking about coming to that fundamental recognition that even the best of who we are and what we do, even the best of it all, it falls woefully short of God's perfect holiness and that without his direct intervention that we would all fall short, each and every one of us. You know, part of my prayer time uh, is asking God for things. I ask God for things, and it's okay to ask God for things, but I don't really ask him for material things so much. I thank him for his blessings, but I, but I ask a lot of, I think, self-reflection questions. And first thing I ask God uh, on a fairly regular basis is that God would reveal himself more to me. In other words, I'm asking God, I want to get a clearer picture of God. I want to know him better. I want to know his grace and his goodness and his glory. I want to be in awe, always in awe of who he is. So I want a clearer picture of God. But but part of that I've discovered is I also have to ask God to give me a clearer picture of myself, that I would know myself more deeply and really understand this vast gulf that exists between God's holiness and my inherent sinfulness and weakness. So So I ask for a realistic picture of myself that I would understand just how deeply disordered my heart naturally is and that how much I need this new birth Jesus came to give. And God God has been answering my prayers. He really has. And and he answers them in very surprising ways and, and sometimes painful ways, but we need those things. See, one time at one point praying this prayer, God brought back to me a memory. It was a memory of when I was just a little boy, about maybe eight, nine years old, and something I had long forgotten. But I was living in New York City back then, attending St. Stephen's Catholic School on East 28th Street. And during recess, the boys in my class, we would have foot races. We would race from one end of the cement courtyard to the other wall and then back. There wasn't much else to do with New York City, you know, school, no grass or playground. It was just a cement courtyard, so we used to race. And I'll tell you, without any sense of immodesty, I was one of the faster boys in my class. I was fast but I wasn't the fastest. That honor belonged to another kid named Michael Costa, who beat me time after time after time, and I never could catch him. And I never remember making up any ground on him either, like if I kept working, you know, one day I'd beat him. Michael Costa had me hands down, and there was nothing I could do about it. And let me tell you, I didn't like it. And pretty soon, I found I didn't like him much either. Well, one day, a boy transferred to our school. His name was Mark. And it's plain to see Mark was a pretty athletic kid, and he was fast. Maybe faster than Michael Costa. Trouble was, Mark was a quiet kid. He was easygoing. He had no interest in who was faster than whom. He had no interest in where elementary-age boys found themselves in the pecking order. Mark was just a nice kid who wanted to be left alone, but I saw in this nice kid, I saw a chance to bring Michael Costa down. (laughs) So I began poking and prodding and encouraging him to race Michael Costa. Now, Mark could have cared less, but behind the scenes... I was kind of like an antagonist. Remember Don King, the boxing promoter? I was like him, working behind the scenes to bring the showdown to a head, and then one day it happened. Shy, retiring Mark lined up in that cement courtyard to race Michael Costa. Michael Costa raced him, and we said, Gunya, Mark, it said go. They started, and Mark 
blew his doors off. It wasn't even close. Michael Costa, who had never lost before, was humiliated. And to this day, 50 years later, as I stand before you right at this second, I can still picture Michael's face when he lost. And there I was in the background, quietly reveling in it all. And I know what you're thinking. What a jerk. No, no. <laughs> Which is true. But, but I'll get there. I'll get there. I know what you're probably thinking. Okay, come on. What's the big deal? You're just a kid. Eight, nine years old. This is kid stuff, right? It's much more than that. It's really about the inner workings of a heart already consumed with jealousy and envy and intrigue and guile. Only eight or nine years old, but already demonstrating such a sophisticated level of depravity, even then, that I can only shudder imagining if that depravity had gone unchecked. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not just kid stuff. It's about what's in here. I was a child of hell. And that's why I needed a savior. And that's why Jesus said, you must be born again. See, being born again doesn't mean having a certain type of religious experience. It means having Jesus. It means recognizing our sins and our complete alienation from God. And it means God putting his very own spirit into our hearts so that new desires, new motivations, and a new power begins to show up and reshape our lives. And this is something we cannot do ourselves. It only comes from him. In fact, explaining it all to Nicodemus, Jesus draws on this old, obscure story from the Old Testament, 21st chapter of the book of Numbers. The Israelites are wandering in the desert, and they begin grumbling. You know, they're always grumbling. They got no water. They don't like the food God's given them. Too much manna. They want something else. They're filled with ingratitude. They're just in a bad place. They're a bad place emotionally and spiritually, mentally, communally. And they're rebelling against God. And so the Lord sends swarms of poisonous snakes into the Israelite camp to punish them. And many of them die. But then they confess their sins. And God tells Moses to cast a bronze replica of a snake. To forge a snake out of bronze. Put it up on a pole. And that anyone bitten can look up at it and live. And it's a strange story. But there's a purpose behind this story. You see, the point is, this story really foreshadows Jesus' death on the cross. And the point is that just as the Israelites who were bitten and infected by that venom could look up at that bronze serpent and live, humanity as a whole, you and I, we've been infected with another type of deadly poison, and that poison is sin. And left unchecked, left unchecked, sin will destroy each and every one of us in the end. And the only cure for sin the only cure is not by trying harder. It's not by being more sincere or attending church more often. Things Nicodemus might have thought. The only cure for sin, as scholar N.T. Wright says, is to look at the Son of Man lifted up and dying on the cross and find life through believing in him. This is what Jesus means by being born again. It's not about simply admiring Jesus. It's, it's about following Jesus. It's about identifying with Jesus. It's about letting his blood cleanse you and his spirit remake you from the inside out. As someone once said, no one gets to heaven by being a good person. 
That's the lie of our age. In fact, it's the lie of every age. It's the lie of every so-called religion that we can be good enough or pure enough or righteous enough to see God. You know, as good as he was, and he was really a good man. Nicodemus found out that he was not good enough. But here's the good news of the gospel. Instead of Jesus telling him that there was more he had to do, purer he had to be, and further he had to go, Jesus told Nicodemus the good news of how far God had gone for him. For God's soul of the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Phil Yancey tells of a young girl who'd run away from home after one too many arguments with her parents, you know, about the way she dressed, the music she listened to, the company she kept. So one day she just took off, she ran away. And pretty soon she found herself in Detroit where she met a man driving the biggest car she had ever seen in her life. Well, the man offered her a ride. He bought her lunch, he even arranged a place for her to stay. And after he gave her some pills that made her feel wonderful, she decided, well, you know, she'd been right all along. Her parents had been keeping her from all the fun. Well, the man with the big car treated her kindly for a while. He bought her expensive things and set her up in an apartment. She got to order room service whenever she wanted. She lived it up. But of course, you know there was more to this man than there seemed. Because once he had gained her confidence, he began teaching her things, he said, that other men liked. And then he put her to work. So she began walking the streets of Detroit. With it came money and attention and the illusion that she was in control and that her life was her own. And even though she got a brief scare one day when she saw her picture on the back of a milk carton, she quickly forgot about it because she changed so much since she left home, she, she was sure nobody would recognize her anymore. And things went on like this for about a year. But then slowly but surely, she began to show the telltale signs of illness. She, she developed a deep cough that just wouldn't go away and dark bands under her eyes. And, and before she knew it, she was out on the streets again. She was sick and alone and on her own. So she began turning a few tricks each night to support her habit. And when winter came, she found herself sleeping on the top of metal grates, huddled under newspapers and rags, just trying to keep warm. And as she lay shivering on a grate one night, she began thinking of home, of her mom and her dad, of the cherry blossoms that bloomed in spring. And, and she she began to cry, and she began to pray. She said, oh God, why did I leave home? She kept thinking to herself over and over. And, and as that night, that cold night wore on more than anything else in the whole world, she realized she just wanted to go home. Three times, she tried calling her parents. 
First two, she lost her nerve and she hung up without leaving a message. But the third time, she called. There's no answer. She left a message. Mom, Dad, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and, and, and I guess I'll get there about midnight tomorrow if, if you're not at the station well. I guess I'll just stay on the bus. Well, the trip between Detroit and her hometown seemed to take forever, and, and as that bus rolled on, she suddenly realized the flaw in her plan. She thought, what if her parents were out of town? What if they missed the message? What if, what if they didn't want her anymore? And she thought she couldn't blame them, not after everything she had done and, and everything she had said. And in between fits of worrying and, and just thinking, she rehearsed the speech she'd been preparing for her father. And as she did her throat tense, she hadn't apologized to anybody in years. Well, when that bus finally rolled in the terminal, she heard the driver announce that it'd be stopping for 15 minutes. And she thought, 15 minutes, just 15 minutes to decide my life. And before walking into the terminal, she stopped to check herself in her compact mirror. She fixed her hair. She wiped the lipstick off her teeth. And she wondered if her parents would notice the tobacco stains on her fingertips. That is, if they were even there. And then she slowly walked into the terminal, wondering if anybody would be waiting for her. Now, that young woman, as Yancey says, she thought a lot about what it would be like to come home. She thought about it a lot. But not once in all the scenes that had played out in her mind did she ever imagine what she saw as she stepped into that terminal. Because standing there were a group of about 40 people. There were brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles and cousins. Her grandmother was there, even her great-grandmother. They were all waiting. They were wearing party hats and blowing noisemakers. And behind them, taped to a wall, was a big sign that said, Welcome home. And then she saw her father step out from the crowd. She, she walked toward him, he walked toward her, and tears began rolling down her cheeks. She began to say, Daddy, I'm so sorry, I know I... But her father interrupted her and said, Hush, child, just hush. We've got no time for that now. We've got a party to get to. There's a party waiting for you at home. You know, of all the things that went on in her mind, I'd like to think that as that young woman stepped into the bus terminal that night and saw that, she realized for the very first time how much that she was truly loved. Just as I'd like to think that when we confess our sins and ask Jesus Christ into our hearts and we're born again, that our own eyes are opened for the very first time to the incredible depth of God's love for each and every one of us. It was a costly love for sure. It cost God all he had in his son. But it was a love the Father has guaranteed and shown to us through Jesus Christ. A love that grants us new birth and a love that's always waiting to welcome us home. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you, Lord, for the one through whom grace is poured out 
again and again and again abundantly on us. And through whom, Lord, we are saved and born again, born anew from above. That the old way of doing things is cast aside and we realize that what we could never do, that Jesus has done for us. And Lord, as, as I stand here in this congregation of wonderful people, some of whom, Lord, undoubtedly have been members here for decades, Lord, I know, because I know it's true for me, I know it's true for people I know, I know it's true for them too, that no matter how deeply and long we've been walking with you, sometimes, Lord, we default to that position that I've got to be good enough or pure enough or go further. And Lord, yet that's not the gospel. That's not grace. You want us to do those things, Lord, but not to be saved. But Lord, as an indication that we already belong to you, that we're already saved. And so we thank you, Lord. We thank you for that grace and love which never lets us go. And we pray your Holy Spirit would sharpen us and grow us, Lord, each and every day. Lord, bless this congregation, the good work they're doing here in Quarryville in the area. Thank you for the joy of worshiping in this sanctuary, Lord, and the church coming together in difficult times. Thanks for John and his leadership, Lord, the session and the deacons, Lord, and your blessing upon them. Bless this congregation, Lord. Bless the congregation at home, Lord, in Huntington, and, and Lord, for the church building we hope to buy. We just pray your hand upon that. And Lord, for each and every heart here, Lord, hearts that you created, hearts that you know, hearts that your spirit, Lord, is even, are even searching now. Bless them, Lord, with great joy and peace and salvation and confidence in Jesus. And we just give you the glory, Lord, and we praise you and thank you in the most holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Savior. Amen.